Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this time together. We thank you um, for the opportunity to hear from the prophets that you have called. Um, And Lord, we ask that you would uh, use this time to build up your church, build up our faith, help our unbelief, bring us always nearer to you. We ask all these things in the power of your Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have a fair deal to get through because I picked a kind of broad topic. Um, I, I'm really excited about the prophet Ezekiel. Um, and I, Ezekiel is, does not get a lot of airtime um, in the lectionary in particular um, because it's not always uh, you know, appropriate for before the watershed, some of the language and the content. Um, but I'm going to try to keep this as somewhat family programming. We'll, we'll see. Um, and, uh, and I think it's... Uh, it's a, it's just a, it's a, it's a very exciting book, the book of Ezekiel. It's a, a book that um, comes from a very specific, uh, as all, as all biblical books, comes from a very specific uh, circumstance, um, specific context, which uh, informs it, and um, and it's something that I think uh, that it always behooves us to return to. So I'm excited to return um, to it with you today, uh, this morning. I've called this particular class Ezekiel's Oracles Amid Political Catastrophe. And these two parts of the title, the oracles and the political catastrophe, bear, I think, a little explaining. Have any of you ever been to Delphi in Greece? Delphi? Yeah, there we have it. So Delphi was the location of where the oracles... um, there was the oracle, the great oracle at Delphi in, in the uh, Greek world. Um, people would go there to hear the sort of opaque prophecies that, would, um, that were always borne out, but often not in the ways that the hearers thought they were. That's a frequent feature of, um, the, uh, of Greek myth, uh, that you go to Delphi to, to hear the Delphic oracle. Um, and in Delphi, there is this funny stone. It's, a, you know, it's about yay high um, and so wide, um, which is to say you know, it's, a, it's about the size of a, of, a, of a small person. And it's called the omphalos. And omphalos mean, is Greek for belly button. And the Greeks claimed that Delphi was the belly button of the world. And that in some way, this was how you kind of got in in connection, with that you could hear, you know, you sort of go to the belly button, you'd sort of be connected to, the, to your origins, you'd have some idea of the future because it was the center, it was the, you know, if you think about what an umbilical cord does, you know, I mean, it connects you to something that, you're, that you need, but you otherwise aren't connected to. So it was the belly button of the world was at Delphi, according to the Greeks. And in Ezekiel chapter 38, uh, verse 12, Ezekiel describes Jerusalem as the omphalos of the world. So I choose the word oracles rather intentionally because in the in Greco-Roman mythology, um, oracles are, well, in particular in the Greek mythology, are very closely connected with a place, with the place of Delphi. And here, when, when Ezekiel is writing, it's, it's in the context of an utter political catastrophe. Um, the state of Assyria 
had been, had been very powerful. And, and if you read the prophet Nahum, you can hear all about how horrible that was. Um, but uh, there, was a, there was a king, um, Ashurbanipal, and his empire had collapsed, basically. He was the last great king of Assyria, and there was a power vacuum opening in the Middle East. And there was this tussle between two uh, different powers. You know, like today we've got a power vacuum in the Middle East, right? You know, is it Sunni or Shiite? And they fight, and, you know, so things never change, right? <laughs> but in the time of Ezekiel, the question was, were the Egyptians, on the one hand, or were the Babylonians going to come in as the powerful force? And for a while, um, the, uh, there was King Joachim uh, was allied with the, uh, with the Egyptians, and then um, in the Battle of Karmesh, they're defeated, and the Babylonians come to power, and very confusingly, Joachim's son is named Joachim, but M comes before N, so it's very easy to remember. So that's one thing you can... Um, and, uh, and he ends up going more with the... With, with, you know, he loses to the, to the Babylonians, and the Babylonians come, and they take uh, King Joachim, and they, and they take um, a, a, a good portion of the... Um, of, the, of the Israelites away. And I think, why, instead of just taking my word for it, why don't we hear straight from the Bible what happens? So th- I'm going to turn to 2 Kings chapter 24, and I'm going to read to you verses 10 through 14. At that time, the servants of Nechab- Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Joachim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. That sounds like a political catastrophe, if, if there ever is one. The elites are taken away, divided again from the, um, the sort of remnant, if you will, who are impoverished um, and who are not sort of the craftsmen of the elites, the easily impressionable and and, and dominated uh, group. And they were led by a king, just for reference, uh, named Zedekiah. He might crop up in the future. So there's this, Zedekiah is still in Jerusalem, but um, Joachim is in Babylon. And this is a fun fact where this is something that's really clearly corroborated. There's something called the the Widener uh, Tablets, and they're, they're, they are a Babylonian inscription that describe coming and taking Joachim and the fact that he was in Babylon for 36 years. And I, I love that stuff. I think it's really cool when we can find things where it's like, yeah, this, is, you know, this happened. So this is something that's very, you know, there's a lot of really solid historical evidence here to, to go on, given the stand. I mean, when you say there's a lot of histo- solid stuff in the 7th century BC, that means you found something. You know, that's, uh, so I don't want to overstate the case, but, um, but I, I think that's quite exciting. So here you have uh, the, the king um, in, 
taken into captivity in Babylon along with all the leaders. And one of the leaders, one of the officials, was a man named Ezekiel. So we finally have gotten to the topic. We're 10 minutes in, and I've said the name Ezekiel. So, <laughs> so bear with me. But Ezekiel um, was a priest of the temple. And Ezekiel is very different as a prophet, and that's why it's fun to talk about Ezekiel. And I, and I wanted to, to share uh, uh, some observations about Ezekiel. Because, and Brevard Child says this in a very nice way. Brevard Child's a favorite uh, a biblical uh, scholar, um, of the Yale School, who, who gets a fair deal of airtime if you listen to Mark Ginolette's far superior uh, classes to mine, but, but I'm, I'm learning from the master here, um, that, that Ezekiel, he subverts this typical prophetic paradigm of invective, disputation, and threat. And if you think about it, that's typically what prophets do. They, they, they show up, they say, look at how everyone's treating each other. This is not how Israel is supposed to behave. You're God's people. And you're, you know, think about um, Amos with his basket of summer fruits, and he says, I saw this basket, and, you know, I, and, and you're all treating each other terribly. You're exploiting one another. You're not behaving with justice. Um, and so there's invective, and then there's disputation, because people will say, no, no, we're fine. We don't, you know, those people are unclean. They don't deserve to have this or that, you know. And then he says, no way, he disputes. And then he threatens, God is going to punish you. And, and he's right, God, God, God should, why not? Um, it would be just. But in Ezekiel, we see, uh, and this, again, these are Childs' words, uh, a, a move towards allegory, act, and visions. And Ezekiel so, so there are other prophets who have some sort of priestly connections. Um, it seems that Isaiah has a priestly family. But there isn't a very strong current of the kind of priestly um, code or the temple worship that's in Isaiah to the same degree that we find in Ezekiel. Ezekiel um, is old enough to actually be a minister. And to be in the Zadokite priesthood, you had to be 30 years old. So, so it was a hereditary priesthood, but just if because you had that hereditary line didn't necessarily mean you were living into it as deeply as Ezekiel was. And Ezekiel's prophecy is very different. We'll hear that in a minute. Because instead of being about the horizontal, to use the, you've heard the cliche where we talk about, you know, there's the horizontal aspect of Christianity where we, how we relate to one another, how do we treat one another with justice, and then there's the vertical, right, how do we relate to God. And Christianity is, of course, about both those things. And people like to point out that that makes a cross. You know, it's a fun thing if you're ever teaching children and you, and you need an illustration. But um, uh, that most prophets, prophecies typically focus on the horizontal. And yet Ezekiel is concerned about that, but Ezekiel, in a remarkable way, speaks about the holiness of God. And so I want to read to you um, I was joking with a friend of mine that I should pretend that this was just a, a vision I had myself um, and come in and say, like, you know, guys, I just, before I start, I wanted to, wanted to ask you about something because I had this strange experience and just see how you all would react. But um, uh, I'm going to read for you um, this, this passage, and it's long, but I think it's fun, and, it, and the Bible says it better than I possibly could. So Ezekiel is sitting in Babylon. He's sitting by the... Um, by the uh, Chabar Canal, uh, which is part of the big irrigation system. Remember the hanging gardens of Babylon? And, you know, they, so they were good at irrigating. Um, so anyhow, and he says, As I looked, 
Behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on each their four, uh, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had a face of an ox on the left side. The four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while the two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro, like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like gleaming beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and the construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. And when they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome. And the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Whenever the spirit wanted to go, they went. And the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awesome crystal, spread out above their heads. And under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty a sound of tumult like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above, the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance, And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal. 
like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. Such a great biblical way of saying, a rainbow. (laughs) So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. What? A vision, (laughs) you know? I I don't think I could make that, you know, if I tried to pretend like I'd seen that vision, I, I couldn't get through it, I couldn't remember it all. It's a powerful image, and it's intentionally confusing. And one of the things that I think makes it so confusing is that there's all this stuff about wheels and the animals darting straight forward. And I just thought, I was thinking, how can I explain this? And I thought, I'm just going to read this, even though that's a long passage. Um, Because what you see in that vision is something about mobility, right? You have these wheels with eyes of presence, You have these beasts that are charging forwards in every direction. And if we look at ancient Near Eastern uh, archaeological sites, and actually we find uh, this mentioned, there's two of them actually mentioned, um, I think it's in the description in in Kings, um, in in the temple, don't don't quote me on that, but um, there would be these these cherubim, and don't confuse cherubim with, with cherubs, which are the things that creep me out in Rococo art. I don't like them. I'm cherophobic. I don't understand why you would want these pudgy babies. Anyway, but these are big, fearsome beasts, right? And typically, they would have, you know, Atlas holds up the world in in Greek mythology, right? So in in, in temples, typically, you would have something like this. It's just a way of of suggesting that in this holy place, you're not worshiping them. That's not at all what's going on. But there's there's an idea that it's showing that the, the firmament is being lifted up. So the cherubim is a typical feature of the temple. And we hear all about how the cherubim are part of this vision. And so here's Ezekiel, exiled in Babylon, and he has this vision. And this is not a call vision. This isn't like a typical, you know, vision. It's actually very similar to, um, there's a lot of this in, uh, in Isaiah, in chapter 6, where, where there's this a vision of um, cherubim and seraphim. And, and, and this is a great segue. This afternoon at 3 p.m., the choir is giving a concert. It didn't get mentioned at the announcements. We, that was an oversight of ours. But in the concert, there's a piece by John Stainer that's about the Isaiah 6 passage, which is all about the cherubim, and it's awesome, and you should come and listen to it, and it'll dovetail with this particular stuff if I ever get through it all. So, <laughs> um, but, but come to the concert and listen for the sound of the cherubim. I mean, it's a Victorian war horse of a piece. But... but, but we see here this vision, this vision of something of the presence of God. So, so the cherubim, again, like the temple, but here is, here is Ezekiel. He's exiled from the life of the temple. His job is to be a priest. His job is to work in the temple. He's been taken away. He's in exile. What is there to do? What does, what does Israel's, what do, the, what do the Israelites' religion, what does it even look like without the temple? And there... Beside this canal, he sees a vision of God's presence, which tells us all those weird eyes in the wheels. That's really strange, right? But it tells us that God is seeing, right? There's a, there's a sense. I mean, this is, just, this is just me. I mean, you can... <laughs> I mean, I told you what I'm going on. But I think 
The eyes matter, right? That God is seeing, that he's present there, that he can see. And the immense sense of motion that we get in this vision of all the beasts rushing forward in every direction, that the presence of God is not limited to the temple. That the presence of God has been released, if anything, by their captivity. And Ezekiel here in Babylon is is experiencing something of God's mighty and awesome power. And it's not a vision of God. Remember that. It's a vision of something of the awesomeness of the glory of God. This, that language has, and it had the appearance of a human, but it wasn't quite a human. It's very clear to tell us. This is, not, this, is, this is just a picture, if you will. But it's a vision that he has that clearly is just imbued with the glory of God in a foreign land, in the midst of this political catastrophe, where it seems like all hope has been lost for a great kingdom like, um, uh, like Judah. So, what about the call? Right after this, it says that the voice begins to speak, that he falls on his face and he hears this. And I, and, and I want to I read to you a little bit of what happens, that Je- how, Jesus, uh, how, how Jesus, got Jesus on the brain, um, how Ezekiel receives his call. So, We hear in the second chapter, And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me, and he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And, and he goes on. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just give you some, some so, so it continues. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was on it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another and the sound of the wheels beside them, and the sound of a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord being so strong upon me. And I came to the exiles at Tel Abib, who were dwelling by the Chabar Canal. And I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them for seven days. Makes sense after a vision like that that he would be overwhelmed in that way. But in this vision, and in this call narrative, 
We get something of the presence of God and that immense sense of God's transcendence that in the midst of an exile where an exile community that thinks it's far apart from its homeland, that's far apart from its religious life, that God's power to transcend still um, weighs heavy upon the people, that it's that, that on, upon Ezekiel, that it's still part of it. And this fascinating piece about eating the scroll, that is strange, right? Um, there's some, there's, there's some, again, Isaiah has the, there's the coal that touches his tongue, and, but eating the scroll, if you think about it, well, who's Jesus? He's the Word, right? Now, Jesus is the Word incarnate in his flesh, and if I eat something, it doesn't, you know, it's, it passes through me. But I like to think, and this is, again, this is to Stephen McCarthy talking about his reflections here, so you can burn me later if I'm a heretic, but, um, but it seems to me that it's almost like Ezekiel prefigures Jesus in certain distinct and exciting ways. That he takes, Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king, right? Um, and so the priesthood of Ezekiel is, is paralleled in Jesus. And we have something of uh, the word being ingested, being a part, just for a time as it passes through. There's a way in which, now I don't want to suggest this is the incarnation, but there's a way in which Ezekiel is being you, is, is, is the, the word that God has put on him, has put in him to deliver to the exiles, to deliver to the people, is in him for a, a time, right? It's, it's part of who he is for a minute. And what's fascinating about Ezekiel, I said that he, he, he doesn't speak in invective and disputation and threat in the same pattern, that instead we see allegory, acts, and visions. This is what's remarkable here. In Ezekiel 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 22, he says, And the hand of the Lord was upon me there. And he said to me, Arise, go out into the valley, and there I will speak with you. So I arose and went out into the valley, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory I had seen by the Chabar Canal. And I fell on my face. But the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And he spoke with me, and he said to me, Go, shut yourself within your house. And you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them, so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth, so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who will hear, let him hear, and he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. This is an interesting moment. You have a prophet. God says, I've called you to be my prophet, and I'm going to shut your mouth. You, don't I need that to be a good prophet? Like, I need to be able to tell people what they're doing. And so, Ezekiel, strangely, it's like the performance art prophet. Okay? Like, in performance art, that like, type of modern art that makes us all especially uncomfortable. I'm just assuming here. It freaks me out. Like, mimes upset me, so performance art makes me very concerned. I'm a sitting duck for, like, displays. Like, as, anyway. Um, I just feel nervous whenever there's performance art. But, uh, but um, Ezekiel goes and he does, the way he does his prophecies, he does this, his stuff that's remarkable. For example, God comes to him and says, take a brick 
and lay it out before you and engrave this beautiful picture of the city of Jerusalem on the brick and then set it out in, in the center where people can see it and then put all this siege crafts. This is in chapter four, if you want to look on. Put out all the, you know, like they make it be besieged. And he puts, uh, he gets like a, a griddle, right? From his, like, I don't know where, from somebody's kitchen or something. And he comes out and he takes it and he puts it there and he has this beautiful design, intricate, like scale model, you know, of, of the city of Jerusalem. And he has it right there. And he puts it there as like a dividing line. And everyone thinks that Ezekiel, because this is, you know, He's going to destroy the siege craft and show that, you know, Jerusalem is great and it's not going to be taken. And instead, you know, and also he put a lot of work into the model, you know. So you think, you know, in movies, you're like, they can't kill that character, right? Because it's too late and like they put too much into that character. So, you know, he's put this amazing model together and then he turns around and he just slams it with this griddle and destroys it. And then he lies on his side for 390 days, just because that was the, the time in which, uh, to re- represent the time in which uh, Israel had been unfaithful. I mean, this is weird stuff. But God is speaking through it. Like, like just in the way that Craig talked about today in his sermon, he said, you know, when you're speaking to people who are, who are hard of hearing, you speak up, right? <laughs> and when you're trying to draw images or characters for people who are hard of sight, you make them big and glorious. How many prophets had God sent to the Israelites? And they said again and again, you know, repent, cut this out. And what happens? Again and again, they don't get it. And so in the midst of the catastrophe, God doesn't send someone with a bullhorn and a megaphone. God sends someone to live out in front of them what their impiety looks like. To show them who they are um, in in each one of these things. So we have the, the siege. Then a little while later, and this is, a, this is an odd one, but he says, eat rations, right? Like ma- ration your food. Don't eat too much. So Ezekiel is rationing his food so that he's showing the idea of what it's like to be under siege, right, in Jerusalem. And remember, this is taking place in the exile in Babylon. And, and so you have the remnant... The remnant, the, the sort of rubes, think we don't need those elites. We've kicked the elites out. We don't want them. They're, 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 we're getting in the way. Like We're going tr- to figure things out. We'll talk more about that next week if you're brave enough to come back. Um, and so they're back in Jerusalem. And meanwhile, the elites are thinking, well, these guys are hopeless. Like, what, what do we care? We're already here. You know, like we're, re- we're the true Israel. And they don't realize that they're, they're, they're together in this. They're still one people. That they're still God's chosen people, whether they're in exile whether in Babylon or whether they're still in Jerusalem. And so Ezekiel is used to show from one place to the other that they're one people, right? That, that even though they think like it's a rebellion and the elites have been kicked out and the elites say, oh, we've got to squelch them, you know, that, that is over. With Ezekiel, it's, it, he says, that's wrong. It's, it's over. It's about you are all just one people together. And so Ezekiel plays out what's going on in Jerusalem, in Babylon. And remember that I mentioned King Zedekiah. Over the course of while Ezekiel is, 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 is doing his ministry in Babylon, Jerusalem will be besieged again and it will fall. Because the, 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 the remnant group, the, the, the rubes think, we, you know, we're, we need to be powerful and strong like we used to be. Josiah was a great king. And so they forget that Josiah was a great king because he, he reformed the religious codes and he 
made, he was a pious man and it was about his values that made him a great king. And they throw out the values and they say, we're going to be great again, we're going to be like, we're going to be like the Egyptians. And so they start worshipping the Egyptian gods and they're trying every god under the sun to be, so that they can be great like Josiah. And in their attempt to be great, they've lost sight of the very values which were at the core of what made Josiah great. Does that make sense? And so here is Ezekiel. He's in Babylon and he's displaying. He's displaying for the people what's going on in, Babylon, in Jerusalem. He's, he starts rationing his food and he starts, he takes everything all together. He makes this kind of muesli, if you will. How many eat muesli? It's muesli. Good. We're, we get what I'm talking about, right? Okay. Um, and he puts it in and, and, and he, he bakes it on human dung, which is disgusting. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, right? And I love this because Ezekiel, he's a priest, right? This is a great moment. It, it, makes you, it just makes you feel like you know him, right? He says, I, I've never touched unclean things, God. I'm a priest. Like, I've been really good. And so God's like, fine, cow's dung for you. That cow's dung, is, oh, yeah, like, it's just, like, it just shows you the arbitrariness of the distinction, right? You know? And that's so how much we are. Like, oh, I'm not as big a sinner, Lord. Like, don't make me, you know, like, cow's dung, human dung. It's dung. <laughs> You're a sinner, <laughs> you know? So, so there you have it. Um, and so he acts this out. He just, he, he just cooks all this food on the human dung. Um, and, and again, that, that's like sort of a way of bringing something of the scarcity, something of the rationing. And my aunt, who grew up in, um, who is, is, is sort of Anglo-Irish, she, uh, she grew up in, in Britain during the rationing, and we'd always hear about it at Christmas. Every, every Christmas, you'd hear about, like, we never had this. Anyway, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, and then we'd hear about the Germans flying over and trying to kill them. But anyway, um, uh, I shouldn't make light of those very grave experiences. But, uh, and then finally, Ezekiel is told to take his, and this is a really crazy one, he's to take, he says, and you, O son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take balances of weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in a fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are completed. And a third part you shall take and strike with a sword all around the city. And a third part you shall scatter to the wind. And I will unsheathe the sword after them. And you shall take from these a small number and bind them to the skirts of your robe. And then again you should cast them in the midst of the fire and burn them with fire. The whole idea is that, you know, that this is your mourning, right? If you cut your hair off. Do you remember when that, uh, who's that singer, the one who sang Hit Me Baby One More Time when I was in middle school? Uh, Britney Spears, right. Remember when she shaved her head? And everyone's like, ah, she's totally lost it, right? You know, like it's, it, this was, in the ancient world, a sign of mourning. It was a way of saying that things weren't right with you. As, and that's exactly the message we got when she did that. Um, even I know about it, so that tells you something. Um, and so Ezekiel goes and he shaves his hair, but he, he spreads the hair everywhere. It's on his clothes. His mourning is, is in the wind, right? It's, it's the, the defeat is complete. And so... This is what I like to call the, and again, this is just Stephen, but I like to call this the Jerusalem cycle of Ezekiel's um, prophecies. Because even though they take place in Babylon, they talk about what the experiences are in Jerusalem. And bear with me, because it's a Babylonian cycle as well. Here, and, and this, is, this, is, this is an exciting thing, uh, um, Ezekiel has this moment in which he is... Um, uh, he's, 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 he goes and he, um, he, he's, he, he, takes, he takes his baggage, right? 
he, like, like he's in exile. And he sets up baggage right outside his, his house, like he's going to be sent into exile. And then he climbs through the wall. Like he, 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 um, he makes a hole in the wall and he digs out. You shall bring out your baggage by day in their sight as baggage for exile. And you shall go out yourself at the evening in their sight as those do who must go into, into exile. In their sight, dig through the wall and bring your baggage out through it. In their sight, you shall lift the baggage upon your shoulder and carry it out at dusk. Now, it, the, remember that we had the, 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 the remnant left in Jerusalem, right? They think, they, they, they are not, you know, they're happy, they, you know, they, they are so focused on their greatness that they don't feel like the greatness is lost because King Joachim is being held in Babylon. They're all invested in Zedekiah, right? So their, their idea of their greatness is, I am going, you know, like, like we are as the remnant. We're going to build up again. We're going to be powerful. We don't need those guys. And so what does Ezekiel do? He acts out. Again, he doesn't say anything. He acts out what it's like to be an exile, what it's like to be a migrant for the people. So there, the people of, in Jerusalem see what that experience is like. Again, it's saying you're one people. Don't lose sight of this. And so he acts out what it's like to be a migrant. And, and, and he crawls through a wall, right? I think that's helpful. You know, if you think you can wall yourself in and be powerful in Jerusalem, the wall is never going never gonna to save you, right? Only God can save you. And then the next, the next one he does is he's, he, he trembles with anxiety and dismay as he eats food and drink. And this is in chapter 12, if you, if you want to follow on at the 17th verse here. Um, and and this, is, this, is, this is fun because he says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, eat your bread with quaking and drink water with trembling and anxiety. If you're in a prison and you get your rations and you're not being given enough, you eat it furtively, right? You're afraid, right? If you're in exile, you're afraid about, about the health of what you have. If you're traversing the desert to go from one place from another, if you're a, a refugee, right, leaving a country and coming to another one, you eat your food, with trembling because you don't know when you're going to get it next, right? And so Ezekiel acts that out for them. And, and I particularly like this one because in it, there's a, there's a moment in which he says um, uh, that uh, he, he mentions how um, th- there's a false vision here. I, sh- I suppose I should just read it so I can find it. But um, which, where, where, David? 24, thank you. Um, Right, so there will be no more, any, any more false vision or flattering or divination with us. Do you remember in Jeremiah when um, uh, he says, woe be unto the prophets who say, peace, peace, where there is no peace, right? That when people say, You're gonna, you, you, you can do it, you can worship these different gods and you can be a great... Don't, those are false prophets. Not every vision is going to be fulfilled. People are going to promise greatness to you when you're divided. But you're not, it's not... It's, it's, a, it's, it's a false vision. The only greatness comes from seeing who God is and who God has made you as a people, as his people. And we're coming to a close, but I wanted to speak about the final and remarkable um, uh, part of this cycle, which is in chapter 24. And again, that cycle, is just, that's my name for it. I, I think it makes sense this way. Um, but at, at the 15th verse, and I'm going to read it to you. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. 
Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And the next morning I did what I was commanded. And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things mean for us, that you're acting thus? And then I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me, Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul. And your sons and daughters, whom you left behind, shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Your turban shall be on your head and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign. According to all that he has done, you shall do. When this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. We talk about being convicted, being convicted of our sin being convicted of our need for a savior. It's actually when we see our division against one another, when we see how careless and, and, and callous we can be about the values and the things that are the most important things that make us who we are. Those things are destroyed and we don't mourn. We mourn when, you know, like I crashed my car t- twice this year and I was so upset about it. That was like the, the you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a terrible accident or anything, but, but that was like, if I remember the things, you know, that was one of the, the most unpleasant things. You, we focus on things that are material. We, we miss, we lose sight of the values. Of, we lose sight of the fact that the community of exiles and the remnant are one people, God's people, Israel. And it's when we recognize that need that then we know that God is who God is, that God's holiness, that the power of that vision, that his glory is so ultimately other than who we are, then we know something of our need. Then we know our difference. Now, I sowed the seed a little bit just today about um, some parallels here, about thinking about that performance aspect, thinking about who Jesus Christ is for us, the nature of his ministry. And I don't want to confuse these things. I mean, Jesus is our, is our savior, Ezekiel is not. But we'll be looking at the restoration of the temple. Because this is, this is a dark place to end, that we'll know that the Lord is God and other from us when we are convicted, when we see that we have been divided against one another, that the, the, the delight of our eyes, like, our, like a wife dying and we don't even care that we lose sight of what God has given us that makes us the light of the world. And that then we'll know who God is. But Ezekiel goes on, and he goes on to speak of the restoration of the temple. He speaks a word of peace and of restoration that has everything to do with Jesus Christ. And so I hope you'll come next week for a word of uplift (laughs) in the midst of this dark oracle of doom that we've heard from the prophet Ezekiel. I have one minute for questions. David has the thing.
just amazed by the imagery in there. And I wonder if John, when he was writing Revelation, plagiarized this thing. <laughs> well, well, there's a lot of, I mean, John, John clearly knows the scriptures very well. Um, and, and Ezekiel actually, spe- I'm glad you mentioned the word plagiarist because Ezekiel is, is remarkable in the way that, if you, I mean, it's, if you want to nerd out in a seminary class, Ezekiel is the place to go because he draws on so many different other prophets in ways that are fascinating. But you can't, I mean, you can't possibly do them in a class. It's just introducing the prophet like this. So that's, that's a really uh, important and, and, and exciting thing about Ezekiel. But the Bible is in, conver- there are many different books and they're all in conversation with one another. But Ezekiel is a particularly learned man who knows the tradition and that, and that makes a big difference. Uh, in particular, the way he deals with Leviticus and the Holiness Code is a very special thing in Ezekiel. If you want to read more about it, I'd be happy to help. And I was just reminded of Thomas Cranley Inwardly digest, absolutely. It's, it's complicated and we won't understand it. That's yeah. what we yeah. Go back, yep. Go back, and that, that, and that's that's how the word the word works on us, right? It changes us. It's it, it's we become signs for the world, the light of the world, because of how God's word in Christ and God's word inspired the, in, by the Holy Spirit in the Bible works on us, and we become actors, kind of like Ezekiel, in ways unbeknownst to ourselves uh, through our Christian faith. So God is reaching out in love in spite of all the oracles of doom. <laughs> and uh, let's, let's praise him and thank him for that. So we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for raising up the prophet Ezekiel. Um, we ask that you would open our eyes, open our ears, help us to see the messages that are being lived out among us, the messages of your love, of your fidelity, your faithfulness, and also the messages that show us how we are so quick um, to promote division, to fail to see how we are one people and that all our hope and all that's what's best about us depends upon our relationship with you. We ask these things in the power of your spirit and in Jesus' most holy name. Amen.